This is the Humanist Report with Mike Figueredo. The Humanist Report podcast is funded by viewers like you through Patreon and PayPal. To support the show, visit patreon.com forward slash humanist report or become a member at humanistreport.com. Now, enjoy the show. Welcome to the Humanist Report Podcast. My name is Mike Figueredo, and this is the 157th edition of the program. And today is August 23rd, and before we get into the program, I want to take a moment to thank all of our newest Patreon and PayPal contributors that signed up just this last week to support us, and that includes Joan Visser, Laura Fielding, Megan M., Michael Castelli, Stefano Genovese, Troy C., and Veruz Keshishian. So thank you so much to all of these kind individuals. If you'd also like to sign up to support the program, you can visit humanistreport.com support or check out patreon.com forward slash humanistreport. So on today's episode, Fox News continues their smear campaign of Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Fox News host Trish Reagan tried to compare Denmark to Venezuela and she ended up getting called out by a Danish politician. Bernie Sanders declares that the time for Medicare for All is now in an op-ed for CNN. Howard Dean was trolled by Sasha Baron Cohen on Who is America? Omarosa reveals how Betsy DeVos responded to the students that booed her during her commencement speech at Bethune-Cookman University. Ajit Pai was grilled by the U.S. Senate over his lie about a DDoS attack. And finally, CNN reported on the U.S.'s role in the genocide being carried out by Saudi Arabia in Yemen. So that's on the agenda for today. I hope you guys enjoy the program. So this week, Fox News decided to rehash the whole Ocasio-Cortez slash Ben Shapiro debate kerfuffle, and this time they brought on a number of conservative women who have now challenged Ocasio-Cortez to a debate, and the Fox News host decided to allow each of them to take turns shit-talking Ocasio-Cortez. But before we get to the actual segment itself and discuss the substance, I can't not mention how they set up this segment, because look at the graphic that they used to open this segment when talking about Ocasio-Cortez. Democratic darling Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez has no problem touting her free-for-all socialist agenda to liberal outlets, but when Ben Shapiro offered her $10,000 to debate, she accused him of catcalling and refused. So what's her excuse now, now that conservative women are challenging her to the debate? It's almost as if Fox News has an agenda or something. (laughs) Now look, for the supposedly self-proclaimed fair and balanced network, I'm fine with them using that segment, but if they still want to purport that they are in fact fair and balanced, then they should probably use this to open with any segments where they discuss our war criminal president, Donald Trump. Now, what's funny is that if any other network used that graphic to discuss Donald Trump, it'd probably be Fox News that would be the first to call out the bias. But when they are brazenly biased and they show dollars raining down over Ocasio-Cortez's picture, then, you know, it's no problem. But getting to the actual substance itself of the actual clip to kind of get you caught up, Ocasio-Cortez refused to debate Ben Shapiro last week, and on Twitter, she likened his offer to catcalling. So, 
because her refusal to debate him was seemingly premised on gender, well, the underlying implication of this clip is, well, look, Alexandria, you have three conservative women who are more than willing to debate you, who have challenged you to a debate. So what's your excuse now if you can't hide behind gender? So that's the overall implication. And one by one, each of these women discuss why they think Ocasio-Cortez doesn't want to debate them. And this is how that went. Candace, I'll start with you because you were offering her $100,000 to a charity of her choice, thanks to um, people who have contributed to Turning Point USA. Did you ever hear from her? I did not hear from her, and this is not the first time that she's declined to debate me. She ignored uh, a TV station which came forward and said that they would actually sponsor a conversation between the two of us. And I think that this indicates that she doesn't understand the platform upon which she stands for. It would make sense for her to want to come forward and defend her ideas, but of course, her ideas do not make sense beyond on the paper the utopian concepts that she preaches. So it's unfortunate, but I'm not surprised whatsoever. Uh, Kaya, I know you asked her to, to debate her. You put on Twitter, yeah. can I please debate you? Did you ever hear from her? Not a penny, not a word. And you know, I want her to debate at Politicon. You know, Politicon is going to be an open platform, very non-biased. So I was hoping that she would have responded, but nothing. Why do you think she didn't? Uh, I, I think she's scared to debate. I think that's the thing. The socialistic platform of the regime that she's thinking to bring into the American uh, platform is just, I don't think she knows what she really is going to debate about. I think she's confused even. You know, some of the things mm -hmm. she has said, she's not even sure about Nancy Pelosi, which is part of her team. Ali Beth, you, you did that mock video of her and you were hit, hit for it. Why don't you think she's responding to you? Exactly. Well, first of all, let's make something clear. She didn't deny Ben Shapiro's offer to debate based on sexism. She did it based on fear. And the ironic thing is, is that when I released that satirical interview just a couple weeks ago, she responded by accusing Republicans of being scared of her. Uh, well, considering that she has ignored or denied all requests from conservative men and women to have a conversation mm -hmm. about the pros and cons of socialism, I would say that it's not us that is scared of her. It is she that is scared of us. Now, embedded in everything that they said was this condescending undertone that they're smarter than Ocasio-Cortez. And the reason why Ocasio-Cortez doesn't want to debate them is because she just can't possibly compete with their intellect. <laughs> <laughs> And specifically, this is what Candace said. She implied that Ocasio-Cortez was a dingbat by saying she doesn't understand the platform upon which she stands for. Well, neither do you. If you want to pretend to be this intellect, Candace, then maybe you should actually memorize the talking points that your right-wing funders have given to you. The vast majority, 87% of scientists, said that human activity is driving global warming, yet only half the American public, public ascribed to that view. So, well, what website is 87%, this? 87%, and this is scientific american yeah yeah dot com though like it, that, that means it's it's making money i don't trust that if it was a dot org i would probably take that but that this is just a random website and well, I, I don't scientific trust american it. is not necessarily a random website it's, yeah i don't i don't believe this like at all just so you know right. you don't believe it like at all <laughs> well since you couldn't perfectly recite the right-wing talking points on climate change that right-wing oligarchs like Dennis Prager gave to you, maybe you don't understand the platform that you stand for as well, Candace. But of course, it's only Ocasio-Cortez that's in the wrong here, and they're in the right, and really, I think that these are all opportunistic individuals who are trying to use Ocasio-Cortez, because she's very famous, to boost their own careers. Now, another thing that Candace said, which was which was pretty 
dim-witted, <laughs> to be frank, not to be a dick, but it was pretty dim-witted. She states, her ideas do not make sense beyond, on the paper, the utopian concepts that she preaches. Utopian concepts that Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez preaches. Okay, let's look at these, quote, utopian concepts here. She stands for Medicare for All. Wow, what a crazy fucking utopian idea. It's not like every other modern industrialized country has some form of a healthcare guarantee. But I mean, to Candace Owens, this is a utopian idea. Yeah, of course, if, if you only live in a world where the United States is the only country in existence and you don't acknowledge other countries and what they're doing, sure, maybe it's utopian. But let's look at some of the other utopian ideas that Ocasio-Cortez is talking about. We see solidarity with Puerto Rico, supporting women's rights, and LGBTQ uh, equality. I mean, wow, supporting seniors. These are all such crazy ideas. I don't know how Ocasio-Cortez can possibly defend them because they're so utopian. I mean, do you understand how naive you sound, you sound like someone who's completely ignorant to the world. If you just look north to our neighbors in Canada, guess what? They have a lot of these utopian ideas. In fact, if you just have some introspection and look within the United States, you'll see that we have policies designed to support seniors and women and LGBTQ Americans. Now, certainly we could be doing more for all of these communities, but these are not utopian ideas. And it's really interesting that when she talks about Ocasio-Cortez's supposedly utopian ideas, she never mentions specific policy. And that's on purpose. It's because they're not utopian. And if she actually did cite Ocasio-Cortez's policy positions, then obviously people would think that she's dumb for saying that they're utopian, but let's get to the other girl. She states, the socialistic platform of the regime that Ocasio-Cortez is thinking to bring into the, the American platform is just, I don't think she knows what she really is going to debate about. I think she is confused, even. Confused. Now, this was this girl right here. I don't know who that is. I've never heard of her or seen her before, but she's calling Ocasio-Cortez confused, and given the word salad that she just made, it seems like maybe she's confused. And understand what she said here. She used a really unique term. The regime that Ocasio-Cortez is trying to bring to the U.S. She's implying that Ocasio-Cortez here, at least given what I can extrapolate from that word salad she just made, is that Ocasio-Cortez wants regime change? Is that honestly what you're trying to contend right now? That she's advocating for regime change? Seriously? Well, either you're confused or you're just lying. And I think that it's a little of both because obviously that's factually incorrect. Of course, Ocasio-Cortez is not advocating for regime change. That's insane. Now, again, I, I don't want to straw man what she's saying because it was very difficult to figure out what she was talking about because what she was saying... Well, it implied that maybe she was confused, but if you're honestly trying to contend that Ocasio-Cortez wants regime change, you're just stupid. You're not qualified to debate anyone about politics, and in fact, you should probably just get out of politics, because if you think anyone on the left is actually advocating for regime change, I don't, I don't know what to tell you. You're just stupid. You're just dumb. Now, finally, we get to Ali Stuckey, and like the rest of them, she suggested that Ocasio-Cortez probably doesn't want to debate her because she's, she's pretty terrified, actually. But you see, the difference between the debate that you want to have with her and the debate she actually attended before is that she debated her opponent, Joe Crowley, and she actually crushed him. But you see, the difference here is that she's not going to take time out of her day during a campaign 
to debate these conservative nobodies who nobody knows with the exception of Candace Owens, probably. And when she talks about Republicans being scared of her, she's suggesting that they're afraid of her specifically because of the policy ideas she's espousing that are overwhelmingly popular. She's not saying that the reason why conservatives are afraid of her is because they don't want to debate her. Ocasio-Cortez never even invoked the word debate. When she says that Republicans are afraid of her, she's saying that her ideas are popular. And if she's elected to Congress and she brings these ideas to Congress and they get a national platform, Republicans simply don't know how to argue against them. They don't have an idea or a policy equivalent that can compete because Ocasio-Cortez just has policies that are more popular. That's a fact. It has nothing to do with debates. And really, if Fox News truly believed that any political pundit was entitled to a debate with a politician, then why aren't they defending Cenk Uger, who challenged Ted Cruz to a debate? And really, if any of these opportunists wanted to debate a left-winger, David Pakman has graciously offered to debate any one of them. Candace Owens and Charlie Kirk, they jumped in and they said, hey, we can get even more money together if she'll do it or saying they'd debate her. And again, I ended up in the middle of this on Twitter. I said, listen, I'll debate any of these people. Nobody has to pay anybody, right? Hundreds of people saying, Let, let's do that. Ben, please de debate David or Candace, please debate David. Not a peep from any of them. And you know what? They don't owe me a response. I'd be up for the debates, but they don't owe me a response. Well, That's ben, it. ben Shapiro has been on for an interview on the topic of gun control, although yep. it has been some time since then. And then we heard from one of Charlie Kirk's publicists, too, about yeah. getting him on, but that kind of fizzled out. Yes, it uh, evaporated into thin air, sort of like Donald Trump's foreign policy plan or whatever analogy you want to make. So they don't want to debate. And really, if they do want to debate, it's only to boost their own name recognition because these are opportunists. They don't care about furthering political dialogue. They don't care about the issues. They just want to boost their own careers. Hence why Ocasio-Cortez isn't going to debate them because, one, it wouldn't behoove her during a campaign to stop up and debate some nobody and two because that wouldn't actually serve her it wouldn't serve her political agenda as a politician and furthermore the problem is that when you debate right-wingers at all you're allowing them to control the terms of the debate at least to a certain extent so while people like Ocasio-Cortez want to debate policy ideas well, right-wing smear merchants would prefer to reframe the debate and talk about the fundamentals of socialism and capitalism as opposed to actual policy specifics. And I'm not saying that these debates aren't entertaining because I would certainly watch a debate between Ocasio-Cortez and any one of these right-wingers or David Pakman and any of these right-wingers, but the point is that the reason why it wouldn't behoove a politician like Ocasio-Cortez to debate them is because you're allowing them to change the conversation and to distract from the policy specifics that you're talking about. But I do want to kind of give you an example as to how they try to reframe the debate, because while Ocasio-Cortez is talking about specific policies like Medicare for All, a federal jobs guarantee, well, they change it to a discussion about socialism versus capitalism. Let's look at this poll. This is a Gallup poll that Democrats view socialism more positive, positively than they do capitalism. Unbelievable. Look at those numbers. 57% of the Democrats that were polled, they said they liked socialism. 47% said they liked capitalism. Those numbers have changed. In 2016, more Dems liked the, liked the idea of capitalism than socialism. It's changed by nine points. Why this change? Is it because of, of people like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez? I'll um, start with you, Candace. 
actually think it's because of the Democrats and their aggressive rhetoric in response to Trump winning the presidential election. They're mm -hmm. going to have to contend with this. The more moderate Democrats, which I think is what Nancy Pelosi and Maxine Waters, Waters actually are, have been using aggressive rhetoric, accusing everybody of sexism and, and of racism. And what has been born of this right. aggressive rhetoric is this extreme left platform, which wants to create a utopian society, a utopian Correct. society which believes that money can grow on trees, which of course we know <laughs> it can't. Socialism has killed 100 million people in the last 100 years. So first of all, I'm someone who has maintained that we should probably not focus on the isms because when you try to convince Americans that a particular ism or political ideology or philosophy is best for them, well, you're inevitably going to muddy the waters. That's a lot more difficult to sell someone on than just talking about policies that will have a tangible impact on their lives, like Medicare for All. So I don't even like the way that they frame this. But when it comes to the favorability of socialism increasing among Democratic Party voters, this is what Candace Owens thinks is uh, behind the increasing popularity of uh, socialism. Quote, I actually think... It's because of the Democrats and their aggressive rhetoric in response to Trump winning the presidential election. What you just said is one of the most insanely idiotic things I have ever heard. That doesn't even make sense. The Democratic Party's aggressive rhetoric is driving support for socialism? What? I don't see how that's correlated at all. In fact... The Democratic Party leadership, like Nancy Pelosi, they've unequivocally stated that they're not socialists, and in fact, they're capitalists. So, I don't, I don't understand why she thinks that rhetoric in any way, shape, or form with regard to Donald Trump is driving support for socialism, but maybe the reason why slowly but surely people are starting to turn away from capitalism is because capitalism is a killer. It's failed them. The top 1% controls 39% of our country's wealth. Workers' wages are stagnant, while oligarchs like Jeff Bezos are worth $150 billion. People are dying and having to resort to GoFundMe in order to pay for healthcare, while these health insurance companies are making record profits. Capitalism has even creeped into our democratic process. I mean, look at Citizens United and what type of political landscape that created. I mean, those with the most money literally now influence policy outcomes, while average Americans have absolutely no say when it comes to policies with majority support like Medicare for All and a federal jobs guarantee. And really, without allowing them to reframe the discussion, let's really get to brass tacks when it comes to what Ocasio-Cortez is talking about. All she's opting for is not regime change, contrary to what they're trying to imply here. All she's saying is, hey, guess what? Maybe it's the case that we should try to adopt more social-oriented policies like Scandinavia. That's it. That's all that she's advocating for. But what do they call advocacy for more public programs like we see in Scandinavia? Well, Candace Owens, at least, characterizes that argument as her wanting to create, quote, a utopian society which believes money can grow on trees. Well, Candace, in a capitalist society with the war economy, it seems like money does, in fact, grow on trees when it comes to things like war and death and destruction. So if money can grow on trees for war... Why can't we find money for things that actually help the American people? Why is it such an absurd idea that our tax dollars actually benefit us?
and not just benefit defense contractors within the military-industrial complex. But speaking of death and destruction, this is what Candace Owens says about socialism. Quote, socialism killed 100 million lives in the last 100 years. But obviously, that is such a misleading statement because Ocasio-Cortez and everyone else on the left is not advocating for authoritarian socialism because all authoritarian regimes, socialist or not, kill lots and lots of people. Hence why nobody on the left is advocating for that. Nobody on the left is advocating for authoritarianism, you lying smear merchant. But if she really wants to be fair and balanced, why won't Candace Owens look up the number of deaths that result from capitalism? How many people die every year due to a lack of health insurance? How many people die every year as a result of our unnecessary offensive wars? Of course, Candace Owens doesn't want to look into the deaths caused by capitalism, because that would defeat her argument. She's not She's not interested in having a nuanced conversation about the fundamentals of socialism and capitalism. She has an agenda. She's paid to have an agenda. She was hired by Charlie Kirk to have this agenda and promote this agenda. So it's not about having a conversation that's authentic and genuine about policy. And in this next clip here, they kind of stop with the disingenuous innuendo and implication, and they just start outright lying about Ocasio-Cortez. I think they think it's okay because they look at Canada and they see it works for their, you know, Canada has GST, PST tax. This is how they can fund all of their money growing on trees ideas, but it's not free. With every dime you spend in Canada, you're actually paying for all of those things. Lest we forget, these ideas of socialism is very anti what the foundation of America is about and very anti the platform that President Trump ran on. Their sole goal is to get rid of our military, get rid of our police, and they're feeding rhetoric to the American people, fueling an internal war, which is very scary. So I was actually surprised because she's correct in saying that we do draw inspiration from Canada. We get policy ideas from Canada because when you look at some of the policies that our Canadian neighbors have implemented, they're working wonderfully and Canadians love them. But she wasn't willing to argue on that point for very long because she just straight up resorted to lying. She said, their sole goal is to get rid of our military, get rid of our police, and they're feeding rhetoric to the American people, fueling an internal war, which is very scary. Ah, so there's the fear mongering uh, we were expecting. They're fueling an internal war. Now, I don't know what she means about that. Is she trying to insinuate that we're trying to create some type of civil war? Because obviously that's not what we're looking for. In saying that we want to get rid of the military, maybe she's pointing to those of us who think that we should cut military spending because we're spending a lot of money on the military. What is it, like 50, 60% of our discretionary budget goes to military? Cutting that, it's not extreme it's just reasonable. And in saying that we want to get rid of police, maybe she's pointing to people who are advocating for the abolition of ICE and just extrapolating from that. But of course, we're not advocating to get rid of the military or the police. And see, they have to lie because if they don't lie, then they can't win this debate or argument, which is why they want to debate Ocasio-Cortez because they're not trying to debate her again, on the merits of her argument, they're going to insert their own argument for Ocasio-Cortez. They're going to speak for her. They're going to strawman her and argue based on the strawman that they've created. So, I mean, when I see this, when I see the way that they condescendingly imply that Ocasio-Cortez is dumb and is uh, 
is, is in favor of all these absurd policies or regime change. That's why she doesn't want to debate any of you, even, even if you give her a good reason to debate you, even if it would benefit her. That's why she won't debate you, because you're clowns, you're liars, you're smear merchants. That's what you do. So that's why people on the left like Ocasio-Cortez, won't debate you. But when it comes to people like David Pakman or Cenk Uger, you don't want to debate them. You only want to debate people that help your career. Because again, these are not individuals who are honest actors. They're not interested in having a genuine debate about ideas. Again, they're just going to lie and straw man and fearmonger about all of her policy positions. I mean, in this short segment, it's what, under five minutes, I think? They implied that she wants regime change in the United States, that she wants to get rid of the military entirely, that she wants to get rid of police. I mean, what else did they say? That she is maybe in favor of fueling an internal war. She wants to cause a civil war. I mean, these these are lunatics. This is just shameful. It's right-wing propaganda. I don't know how they sleep at night, given how much they lie about their political opponents. And it really shows just how weak their own political ideology is. Because they have to make shit up about what we believe and Ocasio-Cortez believes. And it's just pathetic. These are individuals who are completely pathetic and they should be ashamed of themselves. Of course... Ocasio-Cortez doesn't want to debate you. Nobody should want to debate you because if we debate you, that implies that we take you seriously when we don't. Trish Reagan of Fox News decided to branch out from her usual criticism of the left, which is typically just Venezuela. Because what else do they have? When we say we want Medicare for all, they say Venezuela. When we say we want a federal jobs guarantee, they say Venezuela. When we say that Nobody should be denied the opportunity to go to college simply because they can't afford it or their parents weren't wealthy. Their response is always, Venezuela. So credit where it's due, Trish Reagan decided to actually branch out from the usual argument and hear us out because when they say, Venezuela, we always say, no, we're not talking about Venezuela. We're talking about social democracies in Scandinavia, Denmark. That's the type of countries we're talking about and we really want to implement some of their policies because they're working really well. So she decided to try to prove that we're still wrong even if she takes us at our word and she decided to go after one country in Scandinavia in particular, Denmark. And she decided to, you guessed it, compare Denmark to Venezuela and tried to explain to us just how bad it is in Denmark as well. And even if we want to emulate what Denmark is doing, well, it's not really as great as we're all making it out to be there. And she faceplanted. <laughs> it was, it was just one of the most ridiculous segments I've ever seen. And there was so much criticism that even a Danish politician decided to make a video rebutting some of her more ridiculous points. And he just obliterated her. I don't know how else to describe it. There's something rotten in Denmark. Fox News host Trish Reagan has made a story in which she compares Denmark to Venezuela. Denmark, like Venezuela, has stripped people of their opportunities. Okay, let's just clarify a few things. Trish, you're wrong. You can't compare Denmark to Venezuela. We have a welfare state in our country. This means that our society provides opportunity for people. It doesn't strip people of possibilities in their life. And no one wants to work. This is a real problem. This is not true. According to the OECD, Denmark rates 11 places higher than the US unemployment rate. The difference, of course, being that in Denmark, 
people are paid a decent wage. School's free. University's free. That's lovely. Actually, it is. But you see, not only is school free, they actually pay you. Not bad, eh? That is not bad. That means that it's not the size of your parents' bank account that decides whether or not you get an education. It's your hard work. It's your talent. It's your motivation. Well, you know what happens then? Nobody graduates from school. They just stay in school. Of course, people graduate. According to World Economic Forum, on a list of the best educated populations, we rank number six. Quite a bit better than the U.S. Sorry. Nowadays, all the kids graduating from school in Denmark, they wanna start cupcake cafes. <laughs> I wish that was correct because I love cupcakes. Unfortunately, it's not. It could be though, because according to Forbes list, over countries with best opportunities for businesses. Denmark rates far better than the U.S. So Trish, pretty much everything you said is untrue, or as your beloved president would put it, you are fake news. <laughs> that was fantastic. And understand what her original goal was. She tried to compare Denmark to Venezuela to prove to us that even if we want to be more like Denmark, well, it's still a lot like Venezuela because socialism is never the answer, no matter what. Even a little bit more socialism, even some social democratic policies, it's all bad. But what happened? Well, not only did this politician from Denmark prove that Denmark is not like Venezuela, but he actually demonstrated how Denmark is actually superior to the United States in a multitude of ways. Wow. And he even destroyed a myth about businesses and how Forbes found that businesses in Denmark are actually able to do better than in the United States. So he showed how Denmark is actually even doing better under Fox News' free market standards. And he could have been a lot more brutal. He could have brought up how their healthcare is superior to ours. How low we rank when it comes to healthcare. I think we're, what, 37th? So, <laughs> to say that this backfired would be an understatement because the internet rained down on Trish Reagan after she released this utterly absurd statement. And can you guess what actually happened? Well, surprisingly, she had to come out and issue a clarification explaining, look, I really didn't mean to compare Denmark to Venezuela, even though that's exactly what she did. But here's what she had to say in response to the criticism that she received. Okay, to switching to another topic, I do want to clarify my point from a segment last week on socialism. Just to be clear, I was never implying that conditions in Denmark were similar in any way to the current tragedy on the ground there in Venezuela. I was merely pointing out, using reports from The Atlantic, The Independent, and other publications, that socialism is not the way. Ladies and gentlemen, that's what I'd like to call a flawless victory. And this whole kerfuffle really led me to this epiphany. This is exactly why right-wingers and Fox News hosts have to lie. It's why when we talk about Medicare for All, they bring up Venezuela. Because there's no way that they can actually argue against the merit of our arguments if they take us at our word and say we want to be more like Scandinavia. They have to say Venezuela because this is what happens when they tackle our arguments head on. They faceplant 
and everyone rains down on them because they don't have an argument. She pissed off an entire country when she tried to compare Denmark to Venezuela. They just, they can't address our actual arguments, which is why every time we bring up Medicare for all, tuition-free public colleges, and any social safety net oriented program they have to strum and they have to bring up venezuela they have to lie and say oh you want to be just, just like venezuela because they don't have an argument if they truly are trying to convince us that trying to be more like denmark is a bad idea this is what's going to happen they're going to fall flat on their faces so this really led me to the conclusion that we have to do more than them in terms of turning Venezuela into a meme because it's such a ridiculous argument. It can't be anything other than a meme. It's it's stupid. It's a meme. So I like that they keep bringing up Venezuela and we have to keep making fun of them for it because anytime they mention Venezuela, just know they're only doing that because they're too afraid to address our actual arguments. Because if they say, nah, you don't really want to be like Denmark... The answer is yes, we do. And people from Denmark will tell you, actually, you probably would want to be a lot more like us if, if you actually care about your people. So um, this, this is great. I absolutely love what this Danish politician did. And Trish Reagan should be utterly embarrassed because she made a fool of herself. And if I were her, I'd never speak about socialism or Venezuela again after this. For months, FCC Chairman Ajit Pai has been lying to the American people about an alleged DDoS attack that conspicuously occurred at the same time that John Oliver instructed all of his viewers to leave pro-net neutrality comments on the FCC's electronic comment filing system. Now, this lie is officially starting to blow up in Ajit Pai's face because the FCC's Office of Inspector General recently released a report concluding, in fact, there was never a DDoS attack and that Ajit Pai had essentially been lying to everyone. Now, even though it was obvious to us all that there never was a DDoS attack, what's great about this report from the FCC OIG is that it forces Ajit Pai to do a 180 because he can't go against what the OIG is saying. And so as a result of him basically being exposed as a liar, well, now he was forced to testify in front of the Senate Commerce Committee where they grilled him. For this particular lie. Not everyone. I mean, Republicans were very easy on him. But there was one exchange in particular between Ajit Pai and Senator Brian Schatz, and it did not go well for Ajit Pai. In fact, you can tell he was very uncomfortable. He was squirming. And Schatz basically asked him, look, if you knew that this was a lie and that there was never any evidence, why did you insist that there was a DDoS attack? And this is what Ajit Pai had to say for himself, because you're going to see here, he didn't take responsibility once. He just threw one of his own under a bus. Uh, I want to follow up on the, the uh, uh, DDoS attack. What strikes me as difficult to digest is that there was uh, an unprecedented number of, there were an unprecedented number of comments that came in after the first John Oliver show that overwhelmed the system. And then there were, an, there was another batch of unprecedented communications to the, to the FCC website, and everybody figured that it was the same as last time, just intuitively. And then your CIO said that it was a DDoS attack, and yet, you know, uh, Chair, uh, uh, Ron Wyden and I and others in the 
legislative branch said, that doesn't make any sense. The tech community said, that doesn't make any sense. Um, I think a lot of people's first instinct was that it didn't make any sense. So I understand your reliance on your CIO. I don't uh, I'll blame you for that. My question is, did you have any doubt at any time before uh, the report came out a couple of weeks ago? Senator, on May 8th, I believe it was, that Monday, uh, when I heard that uh, the ECFS system had uh, been overwhelmed for a couple of hours, as I then understood it, my assumption was that it was John Oliver's viewers or... Right, so uh, I got that part. Yeah. Then the CIO tells you it's a DDoS attack. Correct. And then you basically declare to the world that it was a DDoS attack, right. and including uh, communicating with Congress that a federal crime has been committed. And the thing that, that I wonder about is, given your expertise in the law and expertise in tech, that why didn't you entertain any of those quite reasonable doubts that were out there in the community, or out there among your former colleagues in the tech community? It just seems odd that the moment your CIO says something, that you run with it, and you ran with it quite aggressively all the way up, up until the point where, I guess it was last week or the week before, you say, well, I was duped. That's very hard to digest, so I'm trying to figure out, did you ever have any doubt between the point at which your CIO told you something and the point at which the IG told you that it was wrong? Senator, I would urge any critics on this issue, read the entire report. Right, I read you will see, report. if I could just answer, Senator. But, but, I, no, you're not answering my question. Did I, you have any doubt? Senator, I did have doubts, which is why I asked our chief of staff, who then asked the CIO explicitly, is this the result of John Oliver's viewers? He said, and I quote, we are 99% confident this was external folks deliberately trying to tie up the server. And he continued, this was definitely high traffic targeting ECFS to make it appear unresponsive to others. So you Later on, on July 24th, I had a meeting in my office with certain IT staff. We asked them again, are you confident that this is what happened? They said yes, essentially replicating what uh, the former CIO said and in his statement. You have, okay, I get it. So now you're trying to sort of muddle through this as your CIO is telling you something and the, the rest of the world is saying, that doesn't seem right. That was fantastic to watch for a number of reasons. One, because it was clear Ajit Pai was squirming the entire time because he was backed into a corner and he didn't know how to defend himself. He couldn't use the usual talking points to kind of deflect he was forced to answer the question. But what did he say? Well, he actually admitted that he didn't initially suspect that it was, in fact, a DDoS attack. In fact, he didn't think it was a DDoS attack, but he decided to go against his better judgment and accept the more convenient narrative that was given to him by his own CIO. So understand that this is essentially Ajit Pai's argument. I was never lying to the American people. I'm just a gullible idiot. That's what he's literally admitting to here. Wow. Wow. Amazing. So that admission there is really important because he said when his CIO told him that, or before his CIO told him that this was a DDoS attack, he never thought it was a DDoS attack because you'd have to be an idiot to think that. So now that he basically admitted, oh, I knew it wasn't a DDoS attack, well, he's going to have to explain to Senator Schatz why he insisted that it was, in fact, a DDoS attack, even if he knew that wasn't the truth. The question I have is, in terms of your relationship with this committee and the public and in the context of a quite partisan, quite hot battle around net neutrality and the legitimacy of the, of the participation of the public in this net neutrality process, 
Did, did it ever occur to you to say, you know, I've got these doubts now, and so my declarative statements from before, I'm not so sure that I should stick with those, and I, I'd like to modify my statements. In fact, Senator Schatz and Senator Wyden, I'd like to answer the letter that you sent me. So at, at some point before the IG report uh, came out, did it occur to you to communicate back with the public that this may not have been a DDoS attack? Senator, on January 23rd of 2018, I was informed by my chief of staff, who had been informed by the Office of Inspector General, that they had suspicions that the former chief information officer's statements to us and to Congress were inaccurate. The OIG then requested, because they had referred this matter for potential criminal prosecution to the Department of Justice, do not say anything to anyone. Ultimately, the, F the OIG, uh, it became known they were developing a report and that they were going to issue this report. W once we knew that the, the, what conclusions were, it was very hard to stay quiet. We wanted the story to get out, not only because it vindicated what we'd been saying, that we'd relied on the chief information officer's representations, but also because otherwise we knew that members of this committee, including potentially you, would think, well, he knew something was wrong, but he didn't tell us about it. So the position I was in was, <laughs> do we breach uh, the Office of Inspector General's uh, request for confidentiality, in which case the accusation from perhaps members of this committee would be, he's jeopardizing an independent OIG investigation, including a potential criminal prosecution, or do I adhere to the ins independent inspector general's request? I know, I know. It's I'm a difficult position to be in. I I'm made the judgment that we had to adhere to the OIG's request, even though I knew we would be falsely attacked for having done something inappropriate. Do you here. consider my line of inquiry a false attack? No, I'm saying plenty of others have certainly not held loose about guess, these accusations. I guess what I'm looking for is some measure of accountability as the chairman. Oh. And, and I understand that you were in a difficult position, but I can't imagine that there was not another way to thread this needle and deal with us uh, in our oversight capacity. Senator, my, I guess my only request to you would be put yourself in my position from January 23rd until August uh, 3rd or whatever it was the report came out. You have a request from Inspector General, do not say anything to anyone. The story in this report vindicates my position. It was in our interest to get it out sooner. We wanted you to get this information sooner because it proved what we said. We didn't have the ability to do that. I could have done it, but then I would have been accused of stifling in an OAG investigation, potentially frustrating a pr criminal prosecution. I did what I thought was the right thing to do, which was to stick by the OIG recommendation. And as I pointed out in my August 10th letter, and I quoted the very text on which we relied from May 9th, I believe it was, all the way forward. We relied on the representations of the former chief information officer, which in the OIG's investigation, and in, in, I would urge you in particular to read the memorandum of, of interview if you haven't. Those vindicate the position. We asked them, is this what it is? Okay. They said, no. Have you talked to the FBI and DHS? They said, yes. Those agencies have essentially concurred in our Okay. In our recommendations. That was not true. Thank you. Unbelievable. He's trying to find a way to flip the narrative and portray himself as the victim. It's not that the American people are the victims because he lied to them for months. It's that he's actually the victim. His defense is, oh, golly gee, I just knew the truth, but I couldn't say anything because the OIG was doing this investigation and they told me not to say anything. Ajit, just stop. You've been caught in a lie. Take responsibility. You're the chair of the FCC. You lead this agency. 
So anything that any of your underlings do, well, that's your responsibility. And as Senator Schatz put it, I guess what I'm looking for is some measure of accountability as chairman. But we didn't get that. All he reverted back to was, oh, look, this is what the OIC says. So this is very, very telling. And I really got the sense that for the first time, Ajit Pai is actually worried about his career because he's been busted. It's now confirmed that he was lying to the American people and he has no defense. He's backed into a corner and all he can do is throw someone else under a bus in order to save his own ass. But here's what this comes down to. If Ajit Pai was a good faith actor, he'd actually respond to members of the Senate that requested evidence after he insisted for months that a DDoS attack did happen. And he'd just tell them, look, I can't provide you with the evidence at the request of our OIG because they're saying that I can't do that because there's this ongoing investigation. But as soon as this investigation is over, I'd be more than happy to oblige and provide you with any information that you needed. I just can't do it at this point in time because of this investigation that the OIG is doing. He could have said something like that, but he didn't. He chose to just lie and not change the script at all. And the reason why he did that is because he never thought that the OIG would come out and admit that this narrative was false and that there was never a DDoS attack. So he never thought he'd have to explain why he was maintaining that there was a DDoS attack for months. And now that he's having to explain himself and explain why he lied and deceived the American people, he has no idea how to respond because obviously if they instructed you to not say anything, well, you can tell members of the Senate who are requesting evidence that you can't say anything. You're not revealing information and saying that you can't reveal information. You can just say, currently my hands are tied. But instead he frames it as, oh, I'm in this really difficult position. I just I just wanted to say something so bad, but I just couldn't. You are such a fucking liar, Ajit Pai, and it's obvious to everyone. And let's not forget that he's also refusing to cooperate with the New York Attorney General's office, who has repeatedly asked for help with regard to their investigation into comment fraud. And would you look at that? Ajit Pai hasn't done anything to help them. So it's not like this is just a one-off situation here for Ajit Pai. Lying and deceiving the American people has become the norm at the FCC under his leadership. So if it's too much pressure for you, then maybe you should resign, Ajit Pai. Because if you were placed in this really difficult position to where you had the truth, but you couldn't say anything to the American people, well then resign. Have someone who actually can take the heat be in the kitchen. But we all know that he's lying. And it, it's, it was clear. You can just look at his body language. He was squirming there. He was getting very defensive because the truth is not on his side. Because he was exposed as a gigantic fucking liar by his own agency. Uh, so... I love that his lies are coming back to bite him in the ass. I think he's really setting himself up for a tumultuous time if he chooses to remain as the FCC chair because there's more lies that are going to come out. He's going to be exposed by his own OIG because, again, he's being investigated by the FCC's inspector general. So there's going to be more that comes out. It's only a matter of time. And I'm just going to love this and I'm going to sit back and watch because Ajit Pai is a corrupt corporate tool and he deserves to be impeached. So on last week's program, we talked about how MSNBC finally broke their silence on Yemen. And after more than a year of saying nothing about the US-backed genocide that Saudi Arabia is carrying out, 
Chris Hayes finally did a segment on Yemen, and he did a phenomenal job. And subsequently, a little uh, less than a week later, CNN decided to talk about Yemen. And to be fair to them, they've talked about it more than MSNBC, but they ran a segment that was particularly powerful because they not only implicated the United States and showed how we're culpable for the murder of innocent children, but they directly named defense contractors, as you're about to see, and they educated the American people on who's responsible for children being murdered in Yemen. And it was a really powerful segment. Every day, Zayd al-Humran visits the graveyard where his two little boys are buried. Today, he brought their five-year-old brother along. He's all Zayd has left. People were screaming out the names of their children. I tried to tell the women it couldn't be true, but then a man ran through the crowd, shouting that a plane had struck the children's bus. On August 9th, Zaid's son Osama filmed his class on their long-awaited school trip, a reward for graduating summer school. Within hours, and it had all gone horribly wrong. A plane from the US-backed Saudi-led coalition struck a bus carrying them. Dozens died. Some of the bodies were so mutilated, identification became impossible. All that's left are the scraps of school books, warped metal, and a single backpack. Eyewitnesses tell CNN this was a direct hit in the middle of a busy market. I saw the bomb hit the bus. It blew it into those shops and threw bodies clear to the other side of those buildings. We found bodies scattered everywhere. There was a severed head inside the bomb crater. This video of shrapnel was filmed in the aftermath of the attack and sent to CNN by a contact in Sada. A cameraman working for CNN subsequently filmed these images for us. Munitions experts tell CNN this was a US-made Mark MK-82 bomb, weighing in at half a ton. The first five digits there are the cage number, the commercial and government entity number. This number here denotes Lockheed Martin, one of the top US defense contractors. We're at the forefront of the science that makes them real. This particular MK-82 is a paveway, a laser-guided precision bomb. It's targeting accuracy, a particular point of pride for Lockheed Martin. Part of an arms deal with Saudi Arabia sanctioned and contracted out by the US government. So why does this matter? Because the devastation inflicted by the MK-82 is all too familiar in Yemen. In March 2016, a strike on a market using the similarly laser-guided 2,000-pound MK-84 killed 97 people. In October 2016, another strike on a funeral hall killed 155 people and wounded hundreds more. Then, the bus attack on August 9th where they're still counting the dead. The US doesn't just sell arms to the coalition in its battle against the Iranian-backed rebel Houthi militias. It provides intelligence, help with targeting procedures, mid-air refueling. President Obama blocked sales of precision-guided military technology to Saudi Arabia over human rights concerns. Six months later, under the newly elected Trump administration, then-Secretary of State Rex Tillerson overturned the ban. That was gut-wrenching. But it's important. 
it's it's one of those things where you, you don't want to hear the details because they're sickening. They're literally nauseating, but at the same time, you've you've got to pay attention. You've got to get outraged. We need that outrage because hopefully people will see that and they will get outraged. And that outrage will galvanize them to act and put pressure on our government who's complicit in a genocide that killed 40 children last week. Now, I want to get to some of the details there of their report because it it was really sickening. So, this was a direct hit on a bus in the middle of a crowded market. And as that person in the clip described, it literally blew bodies to the other side of buildings. They found bodies everywhere, and there was a severed head inside the bomb crater. And these are bodies of children. That was the severed head of a child. An innocent child. Who doesn't know anything about Middle East geopolitics and the United States' support of Saudi Arabia. These children, they, they're innocent by standards. They finished summer school and were celebrating. They were excited. And this person described that their bodies were everywhere. Absolutely sickening. And even if it's grotesque, again, we need to tackle this head on. We can't bury our heads in the sand and pretend like this isn't this isn't happening. Even though it's more convenient, even though it makes us feel better, we have to fight through the cognitive dissonance and go over these really disgusting, grotesque details. And more importantly, the American people need to see this and get outraged. Now, they actually found that the bomb in particular belonged to Lockheed Martin. And I want to put up that powerful graphic again because it shows precisely where these bombs hit, how many people were killed, and whose bombs they were. This directly implicates Raytheon and General Dynamics as well as parts of the military-industrial complex that pay off politicians to be complicit in this war. And this is especially powerful when you think about the fact that these are companies, Raytheon, Lockheed Martin, they advertise in mainstream media. So by covering this and directly implicating them, CNN, for once, is actually being courageous. They're putting people over profits and saying, regardless of the outcome, regardless if we lose advertisers, we're going to talk about this because it's too important not to talk about this. This is a really positive trend. And again, it feels really absurd to even be cheering on CNN for just doing something as simple as their fucking job. But this is really important that they're talking about this. And I want to get to a quote that was really powerful. Quote, The U.S. doesn't just sell arms to the coalition in its battle against Iranian-backed rebel Houthi militias, it provides intelligence, help with targeting procedures, and mid-air refueling. So they're really, they're really throwing the United States under the bus, which they're right to do, because our government has been not just complicit, they've been aiding and abetting Saudi Arabia as they carry out this disgusting genocide in Yemen. And have killed thousands of individuals. 15,000 I believe is the number. Now 
what they didn't tell you is that we're actually doing more than just that. We're actually providing ground troops to support Saudi Arabia. Specifically, we send a dozen Green Berets to assist them at the border of Yemen in Saudi Arabia. And this was after the U.S. government has maintained that we're only assisting them with air support. We're doing more than that. So I hope what we're seeing is the start of a cultural shift where we're paying attention to what is going on in Yemen. And there's more evidence that maybe this may be the case because you see actors like Jim Carrey depict the atrocities that we're committing through art, which is a really powerful medium to kind of communicate a message and just how despicable what we're doing really is. Now, again, I'm super relieved that the mainstream media is finally covering this, but the goal here is not just for them to cover this. The real goal and the reason why all of us want them to cover this and press them to cover this is because we want accountability. That's why the media has got to cover this, because accountability matters. If the media doesn't cover it, Americans don't know, and the government doesn't have to answer for the crimes that they're committing against humanity in another country. So we need accountability, and in order to truly get accountability, they can't just do one good segment on Yemen here and there. They have to keep the pressure up. This should be the biggest story in mainstream media every single day, or at least one of the biggest stories, because this is gigantic. We're committing a genocide in Yemen. We're allowing Saudi Arabia to bomb children, and we're giving them the bombs. And yet we claim to be on the side of human rights and that we're going to defend human rights. Uh, UN Ambassador Nikki Haley said, we're always going to stand up for human rights and take the stand for human rights, even if it's, you know, not the easy thing to do. You're not doing that. So it's really important that the mainstream media keeps covering this because we need accountability. And a couple of segments ain't going to cut it. We need more. And so anytime they really do a good job, I'm inclined to point out the media is doing a good job and give them credit for it because I want them to do more. I believe in positive reinforcement and we need more of this. We desperately need more of this. So last year, Education Secretary Betsy DeVos, otherwise known as Billionaire Betsy, gave a speech at the commencement ceremony of Bethune-Cookman University, which is an HBCU. And as you'll recall, throughout the entire 20-minute speech, she was booed constantly. As I said, I'm very grateful for the opportunity to be with you today. While we will undoubtedly disagree at times, I hope we can do so respectfully. Let's choose to hear one another out. Now that went on and on and on and on. And it was fantastic, but nonetheless, she still, uh, she got through it, and, um, you know, she, she wasn't deterred from the booze. Now, why am I talking about this now, nearly year and a half old story? Well, some new details about this story have surfaced, and it's because of Omarosa Manningalt Newman's new book, Unhinged, where she actually states how she was there, she was in attendance, and she got Betsy DeVos's immediate response after the speech was over. And Betsy gave a really condescending, tone-deaf response as to why she believes she was booed. Now, I'll get to what 
the article from The Hill says about the book, but let me just preface this by saying I'm very skeptical of anything that Omarosa says because it's very clear that she published this book because she's an opportunist and she stands to gain millions of dollars from this. So maybe she's just releasing dirt on the, or actually not maybe, she's definitely releasing dirt on the Trump campaign and the Trump team because, you know, this is going to be great for her career. But at the same time, what she says here about Betsy DeVos, the reason why I'm talking about it is because it's not that unbelievable. It actually sounds like something that an out-of-touch billionaire like Betsy DeVos would, in fact, say. So, you know, we'll take it with a grain of salt nonetheless, but um, this is what she says about uh, Betsy DeVos. As Justin Wise of The Hill reports, former White House aide Omarosa Manigault Newman claims in her new book that Education Secretary Betsy DeVos once said students who booed her at a historically black college lacked the capacity to understand what the Trump administration is trying to accomplish. Betsy got up on stage to give her speech and was immediately loudly booed by the entire audience, Manigault Newman wrote. Graduating students and their families stood up and turned their backs on her. I was seated on stage watching this travesty unfold. When the booing started, she should have wrapped it up, but she went on and on for 20 minutes, talking over the booing. I was thinking, it's not about you. Abandon your speech. Adjust, woman. But Manigault Newman said that Devos thought the speech went great before adding that the students who booed didn't get it. They don't have the capacity to understand what we're trying to accomplish, Devos said, according to Manigault Newman, who inferred that what Devos meant was that those black students were too stupid to understand her agenda. Manigault Newman wrote that she replied by telling Devos the students get it and that they are not happy about you or your goals. So first and foremost, my immediate reaction is that I don't believe Omarosa when she says she basically confronted Devos. And stood up for the students and said, no, they, they get it. They just don't agree with your goals. I don't believe you, Omarosa, because you worked for Trump. You're an aide to Trump. You've known Trump for years. You were close to him. So I don't believe that you watched all of this unfold and deep down, you know, you were just appalled and, you know, uh, were standing up for the students. I don't believe you at all. The only reason why you're speaking out against Trump now is because, one, you were fired and you're probably angry and two because you're going to make millions of dollars from it. But I will say this. I do think that there probably is a degree of truth to what she's saying about Betsy DeVos, even if it's the case that maybe she's embellish embellishing a little. Um, would Betsy DeVos say that the speech went great? I don't, I don't know. I, I have my doubts. But when it comes to her saying something along the lines of these students lacked the capacity to understand her goals... That I do find persuasive. I do feel as though there's something to be said there because we've kind of seen Betsy speak in similar ways about education before because she she's always, you know, she's never said this directly, but there's always been this underlying implication that if you disagree with her goals, you just simply can't understand what she's trying to do. And she really has this smug sense of, you know, self-importance and intelligence because she's a billionaire and she's out of touch and she thinks that us peasants simply just can't understand what she's trying to accomplish. But I mean, the fact remains that Betsy, the reason why they booed you is because they do understand your agenda. They just don't like it. Your agenda is bullshit. You want to destroy public education because you want to privatize education. You want to push for charter schools. You're diverting government money 
to private schools, to religious schools. That's been your agenda since day one. So they just don't like your agenda. It's not that they don't understand your agenda. That's why they hate your agenda, because they, they understand it. Normal Americans don't agree with you, hence why they booed you and hence why we don't like you. Now, if there is truth to what Omarosa is saying, and that's a big if, we also can't pretend that this isn't dog whistle racism here and suggesting that these students who are black lack the capacity to understand. I mean, that's a very peculiar language to use when generalizing about black students, you know, for an oligarch, really, to say. But of course, again, this is all coming from Omarosa, whose legitimacy and credibility overall is questionable. But at the same time, you know, this isn't a very surprising revelation about Betsy DeVos. And I've always gotten this sense, and th maybe this is just me speculating, that she thinks that people who are poor or who don't have as much money as her are intellectually inferior. And think about this. She literally purchased her position as education secretary. She She's a billionaire. Her family was rich. She never had to work a day in her life, but she decided to donate to Donald Trump because she wanted a job. She bought her job. She literally bought a job to influence public policy with regard to education when she knew nothing about education. She just knows that her and her rich friends want to push for charter schools because that will make them money specifically. So she thought, hey, why don't I just buy myself a job in this administration and I'll just directly, you know, influence policy. I'll cut out the middleman and rather than buying politicians, I'll just buy the job. So, I mean, this really, this isn't surprising, but again, take it with a grain of salt because it's coming from Omarosa, but I do believe that she probably said something along those lines, even if it is the case that Omarosa is embellishing because she really has given us the sense that she can't fathom how anyone could possibly disagree with her agenda. She can't fathom it. Like when you watch interviews that she's done, when she's questioned about how her policies aren't working, she she has no response. You see that cognitive dissonance in action. So I am inclined to believe Omarosa in this particular instance um, because it's very... What she's saying, it isn't uncharacteristic of Betsy DeVos. It's pretty much in line with what we've seen from Betsy DeVos. And really, it's shameful if it's true, because saying that these students lacked the capacity to understand, these college graduates lack the capacity to understand how her policy on education is harmful to them, they're booing you, Betsy, because you fucked them over. You made it. So loan forgiveness is a lot more difficult to come by, so they have to pay back a greater percentage of their income. I mean, you fucked over students with loan debt. For her to not be able to grasp why we don't like her and why we're against her agenda, it just speaks to how out of touch these billionaires are. And that's what happens when you surround yourself with yes men and yes women, and they never tell you that you're wrong, or they're afraid to tell you that you're wrong. This is what happens. You end up looking like a fool to normal Americans. So by now, you all probably saw the abomination that was a supposed fact check against Bernie Sanders' claim that if we in fact move to a Medicare for All system, the federal government will save $2 trillion. Well, Jake Tapper found this false, and the reason why he found it false is because that wasn't actually Bernie Sanders' argument. Bernie Sanders never said that a Mercatus Center Coke-funded study found that moving to Medicare for all would save the American government $2 trillion. He said it would save the American people overall 
$2 trillion. So that's what progressives have been dealing with over the course of the last week, disingenuous lies and strawmans about Bernie Sanders' argument. But with that being said, CNN, in the midst of all of this controversy, they did do something relatively surprising to me. They actually published an opinion piece by Bernie Sanders explaining why the time has come for Medicare for All. And even if they didn't make it up to us for lying and they did a lot more damage, this article really was powerful that was written by Bernie Sanders. And I do want to share it because it's great. So in the op-ed, he states, Today, the United States has the most expensive, inefficient, and bureaucratic healthcare system in the world, despite the fact that we are the only major country on earth not to guarantee healthcare for all. And have 30 million uninsured, and even more who are underinsured, we now spend more than twice as much per capita on healthcare as the average developed country. According to a recent organization for economic cooperation and development analysis, we spend more than $10,300 per capita on healthcare. Meanwhile, Canada spends 4,826, France spends 4,902, Germany spends 5,728, and the United Kingdom spends 4,264. Further, despite the huge expenditure which now constitutes almost 18% of our GDP, our healthcare outcomes are worse than most of these other countries. For example, our life expectancy is 2.5 years lower than Germany's, and our mortality rate for children under the age of 19 is at the top of the list compared to other developed countries. The ongoing failure of our healthcare system is directly attributable to the fact that unique among other nations, it is primarily designed not to provide quality care to all in a cost-effective way. Instead, the system makes maximum profits for health insurance companies, the pharmaceutical industry, and medical equipment suppliers. Under the current system, while thousands of Americans die each year because they lack access to healthcare, they desperately need the top Top five health insurance companies last year made $21 billion in profits, led by the United Health Group, which made $10.56 billion. As tens of thousands of American families face bankruptcy and financial ruin because of the outrageously high cost of health care, the CEOs of major insurance companies received disgustingly high levels of compensation. According to Axios, in 2017, the CEO of United Health Group, Dave Wickman, received $83.2 million. The CEO of Aetna, Mark Bertoloni, received $58.7 million. And the CEO of Cigna, David Cordani, received $43.9 million. Here is the bottom line. If every major country on earth can guarantee healthcare to all and achieve better health outcomes while spending substantially less per capita than we do, it is absurd for anyone to suggest that the United States of America cannot do the same. Now, what I just read to you was a substantial portion of the opinion piece that he wrote, but even though I read you that much, it still in no way did the article justice overall because he really goes through and he thoroughly debunks every single myth about Medicare for All. Every single myth. And additionally, he even brings up his own bill and talks about how his bill actually would solve all of the problems that currently plague our current for-profit healthcare system. And his bill includes dental and vision. So it goes further than certain countries that already guarantee healthcare to citizens that is at the point of delivery. It's free at the point of delivery, which means you don't have to take out a credit or debit card anytime you visit your doctor. It's always going to be free. So this is really important, and this really is the message that 
needs to be conveyed when we're talking about healthcare. We need to break apart these myths. And it's really, it's hopeful that an outlet like CNN publishes this, but at the same time, we take a step forward and we go two steps back with the supposed fact check that they recently posted uh, that Jake Tapper made. I mean, think about this. He actually had to admit that they're going to have to redo a portion of the video because it was so riddled with errors. If you if you do that, that's not a fact check. And I don't honestly know what was motivating Jake Tapper to create such an abomination because he's done fact checks before that were actually relatively objective. So what he did here was so lazy. I mean, think about this. The Mercatus Center, they have to create these types of studies that are beneficial to the Koch brothers because the Koch brothers can control who gets hired and fired. And for you to just go directly to the author of this study who tried to downplay the finding that supports our argument and bury that portion, if you're just going to ask him why Bernie's wrong, that's not a fact check, Jake. That's just lazy. That's just so lazy. And since I'm talking about it so much, I might as well just show you the, the clip because it really was an abomination. They say that a study funded by the billionaire Koch brothers, who are generally, I think it's fair to say, libertarians and conservatives, that the Medicare for All proposal would actually save the government money. Let me thank the Koch brothers of all people for sponsoring a study that shows that Medicare for All would save the American people $2 trillion over a 10-year period. It shows that Medicare for All is actually much more, is, is actually much cheaper than the current system that we pay right now. Is that true? Did a study funded by the Koch brothers indicate that Medicare for All would actually save the U.S. government trillions of dollars? No, it's not true, at least not according to the author of the study. The study in question is a working paper from the Mercatus Center at George Mason University that looked at the 10-year impact of Senator Sanders' proposed Medicare for All plan. Now, while it's true that the Koch brothers have given millions of dollars to the Mercatus Center at George Mason University, and an AP investigation earlier this year suggested that the Koch brothers do have control and influence over the hiring and firing of professors, we should note, for whatever it's worth, the authors of this study said the Koch brothers did not influence them in any way. We asked Senator Sanders' spokesperson, he told us that while the study says Medicare for All would increase the federal budget by roughly $32 trillion, it also says that the projected cost of all healthcare expenditures in the U.S. would drop by $2 trillion. The study's author says that that $2 trillion drop is not actually his conclusion. He said that's based on assumptions made by Senator Sanders. In fact, he wrote, quote, it is likely that the actual cost of Medicare for All would be substantially greater than these estimates, which assume significant administrative and drug cost savings under the plan, and also assume that healthcare providers operating under Medicare for All will be reimbursed at rates more than 40% lower than those currently paid by private health insurance. In fact, he lays out an alternate scenario that does not include savings from provider payment cuts, and in that scenario, the report says that there would be a net increase in healthcare spending. Now, we're not here to make a judgment on the viability of Medicare for All, and we have no idea if the Koch brothers influenced the writing of this Mercatus Center study. But it does seem pretty clear that the presentation being made by Senator Bernie Sanders and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez about this study 
lacks a lot of context, and the author of the study says they are not being accurate. A reminder to all you politicians out there, you're perfectly entitled to your own opinions, not to your own facts. So do you see what I'm talking about? You make a straw man out of Bernie Sanders' argument, and for your fact check, you just go to the author of the article, which is paid to do propaganda against Medicare for All. And they have an agenda. They're funded to have this agenda. So for you to just go directly to the Koch brothers here and the person they funded to fact check Bernie Sanders, it's absurd. And Bernie Sanders actually did a great job on Twitter showing why this study, even if the author doesn't want to admit it, it shows that yes, it would in fact save Americans $2 trillion. So by and large, this is a really complex and convoluted subject, so it's really easy to buy into propaganda, quite frankly. So what we need is more of Bernie Sanders and them just publishing what he says about Medicare for All because it's based in fact and reality, and less of you taking the word of a Coke-funded shill who is literally paid to tell us how bad Medicare for All is. But unfortunately, even he couldn't lie too much and had to show that it actually would save the American people $2 trillion. So by and large, of course, you know, Medicare for All, the time is long overdue. We're not going to accept any half measures. I'm not willing to accept any half measures. And you shouldn't either. So any Democrat who comes forward with any type of half measure or milk toast solution or move towards a public option. I believe that Elizabeth Warren did something like this. We reject it flat out because if it's not Medicare for all, then there's not going to be justice. Again, healthcare is a right. And if you truly believe it's a right, then you can't deny that it should be free at the point of delivery. Otherwise, you're just disingenuous. So there's a huge propaganda campaign being waged against Medicare for all. Because I think health insurance companies and the Koch brothers, they all see that the popularity of it, it's increasing pretty rapidly, and that scares them. But now is the time for us to keep the pressure up and not concede. Don't yield an inch. We're not willing to compromise. You know, a public option, that's off the table. It's Medicare for all, and that's that. Good friend of the Humanist Report, Howard Dean, appeared on Sasha Baron Cohen's Who is America?, and he was asked <laughs> some really interesting questions about former Democratic Party presidential nominee Hillary Clinton. <laughs> Take a look. Do you believe Hillary is actually a woman? Because there is, I know, there's a lot of lots of ideas floating around. And, you know, I know her. Well, how to explain that? How to explain what? Look in here. How do you explain that? I explain that as maybe the trouser, trouser presser did a lousy job. Who knows? <laughs> now, that was just a fraction of the actual segment itself. Um, <laughs> he showed him more pictures of Hillary Clinton. One of them was of um, her standing up peeing. And if you look... <laughs> You can see you can see that Hillary Clinton was actually holding a penis, but he didn't spotlight that to Howard Dean. He just said, look, <laughs> you can see that she's standing up and peeing. And it was really fun. <laughs> I want to put that picture back up on the screen that he showed Howard Dean again. Wow, that is uh, 
That's definitely interesting. Now, what's funny is that if you would have showed this picture to some Republicans, you could have convinced them that it was real. They would have been convinced that Hillary Clinton did, in fact, uh, have a very large penis. But what's funny is that, you know, even though Howard Dean did deny the authenticity of these pictures, he didn't just like instinctively say, obviously it's photoshopped, so maybe he doesn't know about Photoshop, but his reaction was really great to me. It was priceless because seeing him look at that picture, I mean, politicians, they're always in these atmospheres where they're not really challenged, and when they are challenged, you know, mainstream news pundits, they don't really challenge them sufficiently, so they're never really put in these positions where they don't know how to react. And seeing Howard Dean kind of get frozen there was really interesting. I like seeing politicians who are rehearsed, who always, you know, they talk with their their thumb like this. They do that stupid ass politician point. I love seeing them put in these awkward positions like this. Now, this was a particularly great episode because he actually had Jill Stein on as well. And um, that wasn't as funny as this. Um, this was just, it was pure comedy gold. So Sasha Baron Cohen... Um, crushing it again. And, um, you know, I don't have a lot to say because I think that the segment here speaks for itself, but I couldn't not share this segment of, uh, of Howard Dean getting trolled by Sasha Baron Cohen because we all know how much I love Sasha or Sasha, or I, I do love Sasha Baron Cohen, but we all know how much I love Howard Dean and how I always look for opportunities. Like I literally go out of my way to look through his Twitter to see if there's anything that uh, I might be able to cover on the show because Howard Dean is just, he's a great friend of the show and he provides us with constant content here. So, you know, um, I'm glad that Sasha Baron Cohen paid tribute to our good friend Howard Dean. Um, fantastic. I, I can't wait to see who else he, he pranks. In a world of politics dominated by the strange, the deranged, and outright insane, We'll now take a moment to shine a light on the craziest of what politics has to offer. This is your weekly Dose of Stupidity. We're talking about female canines. You know what they say about payback? It's a real... Well, you... I'm sure you know the word I'm thinking of. Bitch! Bitch! Gay! So in the words of my late friend Aretha Franklin, show some R-E-S-P-I-C-T. And the next time you get a black woman and a beagle confused... Remember this, I got you. I got you. Gotcha, bitch. I got you. Freaking idiot. You are so dumb. You are really dumb. For real. Stupidity. 
Well, that's all that I've got for you guys. Thank you so much for tuning in if you've made it this far in the episode. Uh, also, again, before we leave, I always want to send another shout-out to all of our Patreon and PayPal contributors. Thank you all so much for supporting the program. If you'd also like to support us, you can visit humanistreport.com support or check out patreon.com forward slash humanistreport. Thank you all so much. I will see you next week. Take care.